of Egypt, but Yahweh alone is sovereign, and he's even sovereign over death itself. Death itself. Salvation and judgment flow from one event. This one event of the death of the firstborn will be great rejoicing for some and bitter, bitter lamentation for others. Cries that will be painful. From this one event, there is life, there is death. There is salvation, there is judgment. And just in case we are amiss, salvation and judgment isn't about lesser things like the possessions we have. Whether we're poor or rich or hungry or full or our health, whether we have cancer or Alzheimer's or full health. Salvation and judgment aren't about any of those things. Salvation and judgment come down to one simple thing. Life or no life. That, that is what is coming out of this plague. That is actually really coming out of the message of the entire Bible. That God alone holds in his hand life and death. And he will bestow upon people life or death according to his infinitely perfect omniscient wisdom. With, with the other plagues, with various other modes of salvation or thoughts of judgment, there are spectrums. Maybe I'm somewhat healthy, somewhat unhealthy, somewhat rich, somewhat poor. There's no spectrum to life or death. Someone's either dead or alive. That's it. There's no gradation. There's no partly dead, despite what some movies want to say. There's death. And then there's life. In 2019, this is the most recent poll I found in this, a poll was given in the United States of America over the fear of death. 11% of those polled feared death. 11. 11% of the people fear death. Now, if you're a Christian, you have no fear of death. This is not holding Christians. This is holding anybody. 11% of the people feared death. 89% of the people did not fear death or fear death somewhat. We have become so numb to the idea of death, we either don't talk about it, or we just think it's something we can avoid, like the common cold. 10 to 11% in 2019 fear death. That number should be a lot higher. That number isn't low because people live long or they're, they're godly people or anything like that. That number is low because they think death isn't anything. Death is the worst possible fate anybody can possibly experience outside of Christ. It is the worst thing imaginable. It's worse than Alzheimer's, it's worse than cancer, it's worse than anything. 
And we have cliches of, oh, I'd rather die than do this. No, you wouldn't. No, you would not. No one in their right mind would rather face death outside of Christ than anything else in the world. You don't have to read the parable of the rich man Lazarus to understand Jesus' words are rather sobering. This is the worst plague that will come upon Egypt. But notice he did not get it first. And it is God's kindness that he did not. Rather, the Lord was, was bringing judgments to Pharaoh that were not as harsh in, in, in humanly speaking in order that this wouldn't have to happen, right? But hard is hard. Pharaoh hard is on hard. This happens, but he doesn't do it first. He doesn't kill first. He's not swift to kill. The Lord isn't quick to kill. There's a lovely, wonderful little verse in Ezekiel. Yahweh speaking through Ezekiel to Israel. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Listen to this question. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Why would you die? And we choose that road. We would much rather die than yield to Christ. Thousands make that choice every single day. I would rather have my autonomy, my pretend autonomy, my pretend sovereignty, than giving to God. And God's message to Israel then, why would you die? I don't take delight in it. I have no pleasure in this. There's going to be two results from this event. There's salvation and there's judgment. Two events. This final sign, there are joys which come from salvation. 
and there is pain, painful anguish and turmoil, which comes from judgment. So first, let's cover the good news. Joy springing from salvation. The announcement Yahweh has here in verse 1 has been a word Israel has been longing for for over 400 years. 400 years. Just to put in perspective, this is a, a cruel, tyrant, dictator, devilish pharaoh. We cry over four years of Biden. This is 400 years of a murderous lunatic who, whose campaign trail is infanticide. I'm going to kill Hebrew boys. And no longer is comes the word, let my people go. Now the word is, I will bring Pharaoh, I will bring this plague upon Pharaoh in Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. Yes! The Egyptians have no grip on Israel. They haven't had grip on Israel that entire time. God had put them down there for a very wise and good reason until the sin of the Amorite is complete. And now he is bringing them out and he is saying, afterward, he will let you go from here. He's not asking for permission. He's not asking for forgiveness. God is bringing Israel out. No more cruelty, no more asking, no more slain sons, no more brick building, no more slavery. They're done. They're getting out of there. Good riddance. They are receiving liberty, salvation. And in that doing, God actually causes... This, this plague is so bad. This plague is so bad. We talked about the death of the firstborn son. This is such a horrible, disastrous, disastrous plague. So bad is it that Israel will leave with the riches of Egypt. That, that Pharaoh and the Egyptians will actually happily give them their silver and gold jewelry, and the people will have favor on the Israelites to get them out. And this was, this was foretold by the Lord hundreds of years ago. Genesis 15, he says this to Abraham, I'm going to send you and your posterity down to Egypt, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, that's Egypt, and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Chapter 3 of Exodus, Yahweh is speaking to his next chosen servant, Moses. And he says in chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, ye shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor. And any woman who lives in her house for silver or gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So bad is this plague. Pharaoh wanted something 
heaven so badly that you will happily give up money for it? The Egyptians, when this is actually executed in the next chapter, will say, get out of here. Get out of here. We want no more death. That's, that's what they say in chapter 12. 1233, the Egyptians will urge it with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. You see, get up, get up. We'll give you our gold, we'll give you our clothing, we'll give you our jewelry, we'll give you our silver. Just get out. That's a far cry from where they were. Beaten down, slaves. At the, at the opening of this uh, play account, how was Israel described? They were a stench to Pharaoh and Egypt. And now, the Lord gave people, the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Lord gave Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And then also, it says in verse 3, Moses. Moses the man was very great in Egypt. In the sight of the Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. And then later on, it's, it's not completely clear who is who, but in verse 8, I take this to be referencing Moses. All these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me and say to Moses, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. They're either talking about Yahweh or Moses. Either way is probably right. I think it's actually Moses. Moses, of all people, having such favor, look at the, the favor that comes with salvation. They get liberty. They get favor from their enemies. And Moses, the chosen servant who was saved from dying in the Nile, right? And then he gets brought up into Pharaoh's house, right? And then he goes from living in Pharaoh's house to being a fugitive because he murders an Egyptian. And then he goes from being a fugitive to a shepherd in Midian for 40 years. And he goes from being a shepherd to a prophet of Yahweh. And now he's more powerful than even Pharaoh. Don't we see the irony here? Yahweh is causing the snares that God's enemies put down for them to fall into. And Pharaoh, excuse me, and Moses being vindicated and favored. What vindication God's people receive in salvation. cry out for vindication. I know you do. Everybody wants to be right. Uh, sometimes the Lord will make us wait before we realize or have our rightness validated. But there is an event coming for all Christians where their enemies will show you favor. And the Christian church will be vindicated. 
I won't read it in its totality, but this is what God says to his people in Isaiah 60. He says, arise. Just that word alone signifies, I'm bringing you in. Okay, you're down, you're low down, you're, you're dejected. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Later on, foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be opened contentedly, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. That's your future, church. That's your future. You will have vindication and you will have favor from your enemies. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Your present life and experience is no indication of the Lord's favor for you. And, and the most of our life is actually telling, us, telling ourselves that. We're having good friends tell us that. But your present circumstances, your present life, are no indication of the Lord's favor for you. You will be <laughs> so happy, glad, and vindicated on the day of Christ Jesus. Even the church's enemies will not help but bow down not only to the king of kings, but the church herself. 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. <coughs> what you will be in the future has not even yet appeared. The favor, the vindication you'll have will be great. There is one more joy found in verse 7. And this is the joy of God thinking differently about you than he does every other person in the world. In this speech, Moses gives to Pharaoh words of the Lord. Verse 7, we read, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God doesn't look on the believer in the same way he looks on the non-believer. 
the dog growling could be a reference to Anubis, uh, Egypt's one of Egypt's deities um, associated with caring for the dead. It could just simply be an idiom of you will have no affliction, no harm, nobody bothering you at all. Not even the stray dogs running around Egypt will, will bark at you. Such will be against Egypt, but no death will befall the people of Israel. And we have to ask the question, why? Why will no death befall the people of Israel? Is it because they put blood on the doorpost later on? Yeah. It's because they're obedient? Yeah. Principally because of this. The Lord has a distinguishing word for his people. He thinks differently about his people than he thinks about other people. The spouse thinks of their other spouse differently than all other people. In the same way, the Lord has a distinction for Israel over Egypt. Why does he have this distinction for them? Was Israel so great of a nation? Did they have such a valued status in the world that the Lord wanted to honor them? They were slaves. Was it their spotless obedience? No. Their lineage is as simple as the next. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. Simply put, grace. There is nothing good in Israel. Abraham himself was an idolater. Jacob, Isaac, the whole lot. Sinful. They are no different than anybody else on this planet. The only difference between Israel and Egypt is the one word, grace. If we were to paraphrase and simplify Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8, why did the Lord have mercy and love you? Because I loved you. <laughs> that is Yahweh's statement. I choose to have mercy on who I choose to have mercy. I will love whom I choose to love. There's nothing in us, there's nothing in Israel that makes God to say, wow, they're just so cuddly, I must save them. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Their track record, given the revelation to them, will make them much more culpable of heinous sins than Egypt did. But aside from that, one single thing separates Egypt from Israel and Israel from Egypt. God's word of grace, when he says, I will love you because I choose to love you, there's not a single thing in us that causes God to love, love it. For, for him to love us. I heard it one time, very, very sadly put, 
I don't know why God saved me, but he must have saw something in me. No. It's not glory to you. It's glory to God. We are all shattered, broken earthenware vessels. I know this doctrine gets people riled up. But the doctrine of sovereign election by God Jesus who is going to save is predicated on we're all equally bad and in God's omniscience and it's all goodness, omnibenevolence, he chooses to save you over somebody else or you over somebody else. Not because you're better. Not because the other person's even worse. And we may say, oh, I'm no Hitler or Mussolini or whatever. You could be. You could be. There's nothing good in me that is in my flesh, Paul says. Nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in Israel. What causes the distinction between Israel and Egypt? Because God said I'm going to start loving this group in a saving way. I'm going to choose to do that. And no one can thwart my will. So that's the good news of this passage. From one action, one event, joys of salvation. The Lord loves you. Lord has favor on you. He causes at some point in history your enemies to give favor to you. But that's not all, unfortunately. The last point I have is the, the, the painful anguish of the judgment. Painful, painful anguish of judgment. The turmoil and emotional upheaval which happens in Egypt because of this plague. He says in verse 1, one plague born. I haven't said that before. This is, Moses didn't know how many plagues were going to happen. 10, 30, 20, who knows? But God says, the darkness has just come. And really, in one sense, the darkness has even just come. One plague born. There's just one more plague. And this plague will be so powerful not only will Pharaoh let you go, he will drive you away completely. It's a, very, it's a very intense way of putting it. But he will desperately push them away because he would say in Egyptian, hopefully lightning doesn't strike twice. I don't want you here. Get away from me. I don't ever want to see you again. And then, the announcement. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Yahweh has been humbling Pharaoh and the nation indirectly. He's been using instruments, staves, flies, 
gnats, frogs, locusts, whatever it may be. They're all in your rack. Now, Yahweh says, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. He's personally and directly bringing this last plague. And whereas there is distinction between Israel and Egypt, under the judgment, there is no distinction. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of a slave girl, who sits behind the handmill, and even the firstborn of the cattle, they will all die. Yahweh will bring this distinctionless judgment personally. And just a quick note, as we saw a couple weeks ago, looking at the end of chapter 10, this is a there's a decreation going on here. There's a reversal of the created order. He put the sun out, the moonlight out, the starlight out, the candlelight out, brought out darkness. Locust overturned the country. And now the author of life is bringing in death. He's showing that under God's judgment, it is a decreation a reversal of the created order. This is not natural. There's no special plague that happens that only kills the firstborn and not the other children. It's completely supernatural. It's completely Yahweh himself smiting the firstborn to deliver his people. And they are increasing in severity and have reached the highest tragic climax with this tenth plague. Previously, he attacked their livelihood, the cattle, the crops, the Nile. Now he's attacking lives. It is, it is one thing to have your livelihood and your way of life be interrupted and disturbed and actual harm to come upon you, pestilence, boils, and things. But now he's actually striking lives. Egyptians will die. The only other plague in which someone died in the plagues was the hail plague. And even to that, they were given a warning. Get your animal and your slaves inside, or hailstorms are going to come down and they're going to pull them up. Even that was indirectly. Now is a direct attack against life. Killing. This isn't God being guilty breaking his Ten Commandments. This is God bringing justice. And what is it? It is the, the death of the firstborn. Misery. Just Misery, losing a child. The greatest gift one can have is a child. Some may argue. The firstborn child would ensure the existence of the families of the next generation. 
Very important in this day and age. We may not even think about that anymore. I don't care if my name dies out. I don't care if I have kids. Well, that goes against God's way of doing things. But nevertheless, having children would ensure that that family name won't be forgotten. Family name won't be forgotten. It would live on to the next generation. It would be remembered. And this plague communicates that the enemies of the Lord will not prosper. But they will be forgotten. They will die out. And secondly, more importantly, more important than the lineage of carrying on the family name, the firstborn was the affectional epicenter of their parents. Delight and joy having a child. We all we love all our children. The firstborn child is a unique spot. The first one to open the womb, the first one to be a blessing and a heritage of the Lord. The first child, what a joy a child is to have. There was nothing emotionally closer to the heart of Pharaoh than his child. Even if he didn't practice what all men and women from all of history would naturally and inherently know, which is, I love my child more than my deity or the crops or the cattle, they would know this. Children's lives can't be replaced. Crops can grow back. Cattle can be bought back again, traded for you can't replace a child. Some of us sadly know the death of a child is so tragic. Might never be gotten over. Might never get over that. God is smiting Pharaoh's firstborn and all firstborn in Egypt, even of the cow. Could be hearkening back to Egypt. I'm sorry, Pharaoh throwing Hebrew baby boys into the night. For this cry in verse 6 is not hyperbole. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Next chapter will say that there was not a house in which someone was not dead. Population of Egypt in this era Millions. Millions. I know we read a lot of the Bible and we skim on by. This is utterly tragic. Utterly tragic. You can't say, oh, they got it going to them. They were being mean. They were being vindictive and sinful. Very well. By God's grace, we are held out here. 
Even when Pharaoh and his armies are drowned in the Red Sea, there's no great cry. You cry for a warrior different than you do for your own child. There was a great cry about all of Egypt, such as there never have been, nor ever will be again. I think that's literal. I don't think Egypt, which still exists, has ever seen such a painful and anguishing moment as this. One simple child dying is tragic. Tragic. Probably have all been to or unfortunately experienced friends losing their children, a parent burying their child, and seeing this take place in a memorial service. Moms falling in caskets. Dads unable to speak. That's just, that's just one. Thousands and thousands and thousands of children, people of whatever age, dead. Just as the death of the firstborn is serves as a, as a type of salvation that we see in Christ, right? Israel is brought out by the death of the firstborn, and they have life, they have, they have salvation, they have redemption. So does here the pain of this judgment pre or foreshadow the pain of eternal torment. What will hell be like? What will eternal death be like? Ten, like losing 10,000 firstborns. Horrible. Horrible. All who reject Christ will have a like judgment upon them. And they will cry. Describes it as a weeping and gnashing of teeth. A cry so great it's painful. Inconsolable, never ending hopelessness. And the gnashing of teeth signifying anger, unfrenzied anger and pain. That's judgment. Where there's actual fire in the lake of fire, hell. That wouldn't be as bad as living through the torment, the emotional pain of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's life without God. We gather here as Christians, and we have no fear of death. But that is a faith which our loved ones, our friends who don't know Christ, will inevitably have. Don't, don't worry about getting your theology right when you talk to someone about Christ. Be prayed up before you go up to them and talk to them like their life is on the line. Because it is. It's death or life. 
want to close with this one thing. This announcement of the death of the firstborn is a grievous, painful, tragic one. But in God's mysterious and wise plan, this death of the firstborn doesn't just end here. With this one event, Egypt, or excuse me, Israel will be brought out of Egypt. They will commemorate this very night with a Passover, a, a celebration of deliverance for generations, for hundreds of years, thousands of years. They will celebrate this night. The Lord's table is here because of the tenth thing. The firstborn had to die. The firstborn had to die for Israel to be free. And that same pattern is, is there in the most plain gospel passage in the Bible. That God gave up his one and only son, his firstborn, that whoever believes in him would have life and not perish. We are in no different position. We might read this and like, wow, that was tough for Israel. Psychologically, seeing all that happen, that's really rough for Egypt. The gospel's on every page of the Bible. I don't know if you guys see this. This this chapter is almost a lesson on how do we read the Bible? Where is my salvation found? Who is my redeemer? Israel's salvation didn't happen without a cost. A very costly sacrifice. And it's pretty interesting that in one, verse one, chapter 11, Yahweh says, one plague more. One plague more. Moses uses a word for plague he has not used at all in this account. From the plague one to plague 10. He's used signs, wonders, plagues. This word could also be translated in as, in other translations, stroke, like death stroke, or blow, or wound. One blow more, and I will bring upon, I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. One more Smiting. There is only one stroke which mattered for all people for all time. And this is really just a little, little glimmer of the same word used there in eleven one is used throughout the Bible. And also in Isaiah, chapter 53, 
speaking of our Lord's sacrifice, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. The NAS might say, to whom the stroke was due. Their salvation came at a great, great cost. Salvation is free grace, free grace for any sinner. But it did come at a cost. And the cost was the very life of the firstborn God. Jesus Christ, the firstborn, smitten, stricken, and afflicted that you would have life. And it pleased the Father to crush him. It pleased the Father to crush his only son to get you salvation. Here is the ground and the boast for every Christian. Christ, the firstborn of creation, Paul would say in Colossians, has taken your mortal wound. He has taken your death blow. We must see as Israel sees us go on. They're coming out of town. Meanwhile, bodies litter the land. And even the most hard-hearted Israelite must think, wow, he did that to get us out of here? Yahweh is quite literal when he says in the book of Isaiah, I exchanged Cush in Egypt in exchange for you. He takes one life down for the life of another. We have no life outside of Christ's death. In which case, we should say, thanks be to God at the same time. Oh, Christ, why? Great hymn, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, thy stroke was laid upon thee. Our stroke upon Christ himself. God has sent his sons into the world to bear your sin. Look at how much he loves you. He sent his only flawless, spotless Lamb of God's Son, kills him, raises him up again to bring you life. And that's not because you're just so wonderful and lovely. I love you. But it, he does that because he brings glory to himself through the cross. He wants us to boast in the cross, not anything of ourselves. He wants to boast in the fact that he smitten, he struck down Christ in order to raise us up. It pleased the Father to bring upon Christ one final blow to put away sin forever. And for that, we praise the Trinity. We praise the Father, Son, and Spirit that the, that the 
Father sent the Son, the Son willingly went, and the Spirit applies all the spiritual blessings on your account to whom you, when you believe in Christ. Do you believe? I know a multitude of you in this room believe in Christ. And if you're anything like me studying this passage, you're just rent with the joy and sadness of what? How did my salvation have to happen? Did Christ have to die? Yes. But he went willingly, joyfully even. And we praise the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because we have no life outside of Christ's death. We'd still be in slavery. But as it is, Christ has taken our wounds, taken our death below, and there's no more wound for you. Just by a show of hands, who knows that song of Christ with burdens bowed down ahead? Receive our praise, glorify yourself, and the rest of the service we pray.